Frontier Missions Journal. Stories of hope for the unreached with Adventist Frontier Missions. Hello listeners, welcome back for another mission adventure. Today, Dale Goodson, longtime missionary of Papua New Guinea, reveals bite-sized chunks of daily life from the perspective of a foreigner entering that remote jungle land. Food, mmm, yum, and the smells, mmm, and yikes, critters, critters, and more critters. Do you think you could adapt to this new way of life? Let's listen as Dale Goodson takes us through a journey into the heart of Papua New Guinea. Starting from the time we boarded the plane for New Guinea, we wanted to know exactly where our God wanted us, and we wanted to be there. We also wanted to fit in, to belong. But so much of the first few months seemed to emphasize the fact that we really didn't. So many sights, smells, and flavors, the heat and humidity, beetle nuts, spit, They all seemed to join with the mosquitoes and screaming, Go home! You don't belong here! There was a lot of good in the new community, and just because I wasn't used to things didn't mean they were bad. Even mosquitoes make their contribution to the world, and I was more than prepared to enjoy the butterflies, birds, lizards, and other creatures. Well, maybe not the snakes. I didn't like the huge spiders either. I didn't mind the little ones so much because they jumped, looked like tiny battle tanks and would look me right in the eye when I observed them. But after I walked into a huge spider web and got a monstrous six inch spider planted right in the middle of my face, I decided I didn't like them anymore and tried to avoid them. Pineapples were different. I liked pineapples. I enjoyed the dozens of varieties of bananas too. And the mangoes, oh the mangoes, banana mangoes, apple mangoes, turpentine mangoes, especially the monster mangoes from Rabaul, I couldn't seem to get enough of them. They also had sugar fruits, rambutans, papayas, fresh coconuts filled with delicious cream, and the tasty okari nuts that grew in the rainforest. The interesting thing about the okari nuts is that cassowaries, these huge ostrich-like birds, would swallow the fruit whole. They would then digest the outer flesh, but the seeds themselves would pass on through the cassowary's insides and appear to be in good shape on the other side. I, I didn't knowingly eat any that had gone this route, and I'm not suggesting that people should. But theoretically, if worse came to worst, most of our favorite foods were seasonal. You'd find them in the market for a few weeks, and they'd be gone till the following year. Coconuts were an exception to this rule, and so were the bananas. You may not find the type of bananas you were looking for, but there were usually bananas to be found, in at least some form. They may taste like pineapple or like candy, or they may leave your mouth feeling dry and cottony. They may be full of maggots or be cooking bananas that were totally green and hard as a rock. But no matter what time of year it was, we could pretty much count on finding bananas of some form in the market. As long as people were willing to eat whatever variety was available, and in whatever condition, they wouldn't starve. Those who were raised in this community were used to the options and knew what to look for and when. We didn't. We just bought the bananas, brought them home and experimented. If they were hard or didn't taste good raw, then we cooked them or left them to ripen. If they still didn't taste good, well, then we ate rice. One day I noticed a bunch of circus maggots falling out of a stalk of bananas. They curled up into a ball on the floor and then did this magic disappearing trick. 
they disappeared, literally. Intrigued, I bent down for a closer look and discovered that after they'd curled up into a ball, they popped open so fast they flew into the air and landed a good two feet away. Ever since I was little and was hired to clean maggots out of a neighbor's trash can, I have viewed the disgusting beasts with contempt. But these new maggots were highly skilled, so I watched them in amazement. I had never seen maggots jump before, especially not on our kitchen floor. I brought them to my wife's attention, thinking she may enjoy seeing them as much as I did. She didn't. Disappointed, I doggedly continued my observations on my own. As I tried to estimate how high they could jump and how far, I started thinking about all the little chewy things I had been eating in my bananas over the past few months and started putting two and two together. I won't say I was proud of myself at that point, but knowing what had likely taken place gave me a fresh sense of victory. If I had survived even that, one more fear I had of the future became a tad bit weaker. I was adapting to our new environment and would be okay. Perhaps I belonged here after all. What a way to fit in. Can you imagine accidentally eating a chewy critter and not knowing it? Yuck! Dale sure had a high learning curve to tackle with the cultural obstacles thrown his way. However, the first home they had was only temporary. It was a house located in the Gulf province built in the government to aid the rural community's needs. In fact, there were different stations like this built all over the country. Basically, it had everything necessary for a government official or missionary to survive, if only temporarily. Dale expands a bit more on these government stations. They would often consist of a small school, a police station, clinic, and somebody to help with land disputes and other tribal business. Due to the remoteness of their locations, many also contained an airstrip or were located near one. Our station's name could be translated as Fight Talk and was centrally located amidst four or five different tribes. Although the location was historically associated with battles between two major tribal groups, it was fairly quiet during the time we were there, and the stone jail cell was usually empty. We were able to temporarily rent a small house from the police department, which came with an outdoor toilet, but it wasn't your typical outhouse with a huge hole underneath it. Neither was it the kind that sat on stilts with a herd of pigs beneath it, nor was it the kind where waste simply dropped in the ocean for the current to carry away, or the beach crab dinner model. We lived in a small community on a swampy piece of geography, and the water table was just a few inches below the surface of the ground. Since they couldn't dig holes for their outhouses or make use of pigs, crabs, or ocean currents, the community set up the bucket system. The way this worked, a bucket would be placed under the toilet seat in each outhouse. During the daytime, families would use the buckets to collect their refuse. Then, a couple of nights per week, a tractor would drive by pulling a trailer behind it. A man would then walk up to each outhouse, collect the buckets and place them on the trailer. When he had a full load, he would haul them out of town, dump them in some discreet location, rinse them in the swamp, then bring them back and place them in the community outhouses again. This system normally worked great, 
but if this fellow was sick, the tractor needed repairs or ran out of fuel, or if community finances were low, then the system broke down. The first time this happened while we were there, I was at a complete loss. The bucket was full, and in a few minutes it was going to overflow. If I asked someone for help, then they would see not only the bucket, but everything we had placed inside it. That seemed a little too humbling so early on in our stay there, so I figured I'd have to find a more creative means of emptying it and set out to look for a tiny piece of high ground that had enough brush around it to hide what was taking place. I knew everybody else in the area was probably burying their refuse as well, so I wasn't trying to be deceptive. I just didn't want to be obvious. My plan worked well, and I smiled once I was able to throw dirt back on top of the hole. Once again, I was learning how to function in my new environment. I was learning how to belong. Well, that must have been really awkward for Dale and his wife, Liddy. They were quite used to the foreign culture, and what seemed to them as a very strange lifestyle is just a daily life routine for the locals, what they are accustomed to doing. By necessity, Dale and Liddy would also grow accustomed to things during their term of mission service. But cooking in a new country with new cuisine was yet another challenge. Fortunately, Dale's wife enjoys cooking, so for her, she adapted quickly, even though her stove wasn't as cooperative as she would have liked it to be. Let's find out how she adapted. Our new community used kerosene stove, so Lady and I went to the store and bought one. Her grandma had raised her for many years on food cooked on such a stove, and when we had visited her grandma as adults, she still used it. Letty spent many happy hours helping her cook, so the thought of using such a stove was a pleasant one for her. It would be like visiting her grandma for a while. The stove we brought home was obviously not the same quality as the one her grandmother had used. It leaked kerosene all over the place and either didn't cook food at all, filled the house with soot and smoke, or it burned the food. The outside of our pot soon took on an ugly black color. My wife typically enjoys food preparation and looks forward to time spent in the kitchen. As various dishes are simmering and cooking, it naturally draws the whole family together. Who can concentrate on anything else when the tantalizing aromas of roasting chilies or homemade tortillas are floating around? We didn't really need a dinner bell at our house. All Letty needed to do was lift the lids on whatever she was cooking. All the wonderful smells that came out were our dinner bell. Her new stove stole the joy of cooking from her and made it harder and harder to prepare the kind of meals her family normally raved over. But my wife is persistent, and after a few weeks, she started getting the hang of it. Once again, her evening meals made the area all around our house smell like a king's kitchen. Letty was adapting as well. One night, she cooked up a pot of her famous pre-fried rice. Not wanting it to be gooey, she lifted the lid once it was done and a cloud of steam rushed out into the open. Our dinner bell was ringing. We heard it and so did the neighbor's pet hornbill. The hungry bird held himself back as long as he could, but the delicious aroma finally overcame his good senses. Unable to control himself any longer, he flew over to investigate. We were just getting the table set and the salt shakers in place when somebody noticed the feathered guest. We hadn't invited it to dinner or anything like that. It just sort of invited itself. And I don't suppose we would have minded so much if it had had a few manners, but it didn't. Hopping over to the stove, it peered inside to see what the main dish looked like. Ah, rice. 
and the lid was off. The hornbills saw an opportunity here that was loath to pass up. Hopping a little closer, its head soon disappeared into Letty's pot. It scooped up a bunch of the king's rice, tipped its head back, and eagerly swallowed it. It must have thoroughly enjoyed that first beakful, for in no time at all it went back for seconds, then thirds. As it did so, that foul bird was contaminating the rest of our dinner with its nasty beak. We tried to chase it away, but it liked what it was eating and stood its ground, lashing out at us with its beak and beating us back with its wings. We had to go after it with a stick before it finally flew away. As it left, it looked longingly at the rice pot one more time, as if to say, I'll be back. You just wait and see. Letty wasn't happy with that bird. If I could have caught it, I think she would have been happy to pluck and butcher it right then and there, and then accidentally burn it on her new kerosene stove. She may even have eaten it. Like I said, she was adapting. The children were adapting as well. And by the time the hornbill stole our rice, they were able to appropriately express their contempt for the obnoxious bird in more than one language. The whole family was now fitting in, and we were happy. But our mission call wasn't simply to fit in. We were church planters and were tasked with discipleship among an unreached people group. Since Fight Talk was a government station and our housing arrangements there were temporary, I began studying the various tribal groups in the surrounding area, trying to determine where the need was greatest. This meant traveling to numerous villages, walking through swamps, boating up rivers, and hiking in the mountains. Since there were several tribal groups to consider, our research took a couple of months to complete, and during this time we spent a lot of time asking God for guidance. Phew, that was a fun adventure. And if you enjoyed listening to Dale's story as much as I did, why not subscribe to Adventist Frontiers, AFM's missionary magazine, chock full of stories directly from the front lines of missions. Go to afmonline.org, scroll down to AFM magazine and select Get It Free. Meanwhile, serve others, make friends and share Jesus. Bye for now and God bless.